the word closed. Closed. It's one of the most heart-wrenching words in the human language, I think. You know, you plan for weeks for your family vacation. You're planning to take your family on a three-day hike on the Appalachian Trail, and so you do everything in your power to, to make your plans. You, you take the time off from work. Your wife plans meals, and uh, you buy uh, all four of the kids and yourselves uh, new hiking boots way in advance, so you have time to uh, break them in before you go, and um, you drive a couple of cars uh, up uh, into the North Carolina mountains. You make a three hour trip up there and uh, the sense of anticipation is growing and mounting and everybody's excited about going and hiking and camping and having a great time and eating around the campfire and sitting around and having just good family time and you get there and there's a roadblock across the parkway and it says closed and there are ATF and FBI and um, uh, Park rangers everywhere closed. That happened to us one year. What do you do? You've got teenagers and elementary age uh, children in the car with you. You've made plans for weeks. What do you do? You scratch your head and you think, well, maybe we can find a state park somewhere. (laughs) And you make a job. But I can remember the, the, the agony that my kids felt when that happened. Or maybe it's a little different for you. You know, the Proverbs say, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Maybe you're 11. And maybe it's summertime and little league baseball teams are starting to practice. And, and you've gone to your mom and you say, mom, 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 can I play uh, baseball this year? And you get a new glove and dad pitches with you in the backyard. And you practice with the team for a couple of weeks. And, uh, but there are too many players. And some have to be cut. And the roster is read by the coach one afternoon and you're not on it. The coach says, well, we'll have to plan for two teams next year. And you cry the whole way home. Hard. Closed. Maybe you girls, maybe you girls have had that kind of experience. You you dream from the time you were 13 of of your wedding day. You're so excited about the potential of a wedding day and the one you'll marry and about the thrill of falling in love and, and the excitement of the wedding dress and the excitement of the wedding day and just all the things that go around, just the utter release of of peace of being held by someone who loves you more than anyone else. But the door closes for you over and over and over. Relationships don't come closed. Oh, it comes in different ways, doesn't it? Maybe you come to your mid-40s. Maybe you get to be 40 years old, 45 years old, and you step back and you take stock of your life and what you hope to accomplish, and you decide that you're going to stay with the company where you are employed because you've made good advancement there and things are okay, it'll be all right, and you decide to give it your best shot. 
And after five years, after hundreds of hours of, of late nights and long weekends and working vacations and everything else, you're passed over for the promotion. And the door closes. Or perhaps all your career doors are open. Maybe the opposite is true. Maybe all the doors of your relationships and, and of your work and, and every team you've ever tried out for and, and, and everything has gone right for you. And now the doctor says you have cancer or AIDS or whatever it may be. And the doors start to close. Or perhaps worst of all, maybe you've made it to the top of your career. Maybe, maybe you have had the relationship of your dreams. Maybe uh, everything that uh, you have done uh, has prospered. You have had good health every day of your life. And there's been one open door after another open door after another open door. But the journey through all those doors has been a journey without Jesus Christ. And now you've died, and now you stand before the door of heaven. And that door is closed. And you cry out, Lord, Lord, open to me. And he says, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Closed doors. Those are hard things in life. It is heartbreaking to hear the word closed. Now, the point of the resurrection, the point of, of all that Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 15, the point of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is that God is in the process of clearing this world of all heartbreak and that God is in the process of opening the closed tomb of Jesus so that he can open the door of eternal life to his children. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Last week we saw Paul as Paul was talking about the resurrection and the Corinthians and their struggle with their understanding of the resurrection from the dead. And they didn't believe that, that dead men could rise from the dead. And so in essence they were denying the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And it had gotten them into all kinds of practical uh, issues theologically and, and in their practice of life day to day. Paul makes the case that dead men do rise. And he says to the Corinthians, you just can't have it both ways. You either have to believe in the bodily resurrection and that Christ has risen from the dead, or man just dies. And there's no resurrection. And Paul says you can't have it both ways. Paul makes, makes the point, look at the terrible things that you open the door for when you deny the resurrection. And that's what happens in the first part of chapter 15. He says, if you deny the resurrection, then evangelism would not only be meaningless, it would actually be uh, evil. He says that, that we would have no standing before God whatsoever if there is no resurrection. And he says that there is no hope for you or for your loved ones if there is no resurrection. But Paul says there is a resurrection. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then death remains unconquered. Death still holds sway beyond the power. Um, and, and, and 
it, it is, it is, it, death holds sway even over the power of God if there's no resurrection. Think about the implications of what that means. That's untenable. We can't hold that. If God is sovereign, if God is omnipotent, then death is vanquished in the end. I can picture the Apostle Paul as he's writing the Corinthian people and he, he makes these arguments and he makes these logical conclusions and he, and he builds his case out of the scriptures and he, he goes through this one consequence after another after another and he's feeling the, the deep inner protest kind of welling up in his heart as he's writing these things of, of if you don't believe in the resurrection then these are the consequences and all of a sudden he can stand it no more and verse 20 pops out of his pen. I don't know any other way to put it. The Apostle Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he exalts in what Christ has accomplished by the resurrection. This morning, this Palm Sunday, as we look forward to Resurrection Sunday, I want us to think about the glorious things that that Jesus Christ has done for us by his resurrection. Christ has been raised from the dead. Let me read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 28, and we'll just take that small slice out of this chapter uh, this morning uh, and uh, look at what Paul has to say to us here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let's give our careful attention to the reading and to the hearing of the Word of God. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying uh, every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that Christ may be, or that God may be all in all. Let's pray. Father, I ask you this morning that you would remove the scales from our eyes that blur and dim the image of your word that you would remove the hardness from our hearts that doesn't let the truth of the resurrection and the truth of the word penetrate to the point of touching our souls and changing our lives. That you would give our ears the ability to hear what your spirit has to say. Father, may we walk out of this place today rejoicing in the truth and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I ask this in his name. Amen. 
So I want you to take a second and put yourself in the, in the shoes, in the, in the position of the Corinthian tr- uh, believers, uh, who are, who are the Corinthian people who are part of that, that first church in the city of Corinth. Now, we all know that that church was called New Hope Presbyterian Church of Corinth. I think I've made that clear over the process of working through the Corinthians. And, and a lot of the problems that the church in Corinth have, the church of Jesus Christ today still has. The Corinthian believers were constantly surrounded and wrestling with everyday problems of faith, of, 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 of church life, of family life, of, of social life. They were always wrestling with one thing and another. They, the glorious future that awaited them had for the most part been crowded out by all the, all the cares and concerns of the world that were around them. In addition to struggling with the ordinary cares of life as believers, uh, these Corinthians were living their culture, out, their faith out in a culture that was permeated with skepticism and, and doubt. It was a world that they lived in that, that was full of those who doubted the Christian message, doubted that Jesus had risen from the dead, doubted the truth of the gospel, doubted anything uh, that had to do with Christ and uh, his sacrifice on our behalf. The climate of opinion must have made it very hard for them to keep a firm grip on the hope of eternal life. Not too unlike the world you and I live in today, is it? Don't we find ourselves in much the same situation? We, we find ourselves so absorbed with, with coping with everyday life that the future seems faint and distant. And, and uh, don't we find ourselves intimidated by a cloud of doubt and wondering what's going to happen, what the future is going to hold, and how we're going to make it day to day. And so we lose sight of our hope for eternal life. We forget, we don't think about heaven very much, do we? I mean, let's, let's be honest. And, and, and the younger you are, the less you probably think about heaven. We don't think about what eternal life is like. Paul's sudden burst of euphoria uh, speaks to all of us who, who are carried along by the tides of everyday cares, I think. Paul, Paul speaks to us where we live. Paul shows us that Jesus' resurrection has to be considered the guarantee of all those who belong to him. And he gives us two major reasons for that. And I want to look at those this morning. And the first reason that uh, Paul gives us uh, for the resurrection, uh, the first reason for Jesus becoming flesh. Um, I want you to think about this with me for just a minute. Jesus' original design in coming demands a resurrection of his people. If you could step back... Before time was time. If you could step back into the counsel of God when God uh, was preparing to, to or planning on creating the, the world and, and creating uh, this cosmos and everything else. Jesus had to resurrect, had to be resurrected to pay for the price of the sin of his people. Jesus came to this world for the specific purpose of becoming the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. Now we read over that verse in verse 20, talking about the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, and that Jesus' resurrection made him the first fruits of that. And we don't think a whole lot about that. Okay, Jesus was first. And we go on. 
I want to take a second and think about what first fruit really is. Think, just take just a second and think about that. It's springtime. Some of you are gardeners. I, I am a gardener with a black thumb. So first fruit for me has real significance. I've got orange trees in my backyard that produced fruit for the first time last year. It was horrible. Okay? So it wasn't that kind of first fruit that Paul's talking about here. Maybe it's more like, have you ever planted tomatoes? I think tomatoes are a great illustration of this. You plant tomatoes, you know, and you're hopeful and you care for them and you water them and you put them in the sun and they have the right amount of sun. They don't get burned up by too much sun and everything's growing and they finally get a little bloom and then then that little tiny green tomato begins to form and they grow and they grow and they get bigger and bigger and finally they begin to ripen and at last you go... I'm going to pick these tomatoes before the birds get them. You know, that tomato is ripe, and it's red, and it's beautiful. And you pick two or three of those tomatoes, and you go in. And what do you do with them? Oh, you slice those babies up, and you put, you put them on a hamburger, or you make a BLT, or you make, uh, uh, what is that stuff we ate the other night? Uh, the caprese uh, salad stuff, and it is glory. I mean, it is just glory. And you are so proud. The first fruit of the year. The first fruit is important because why? Because it represents something. It represents the fact that those tomato plants and all the tomatoes that will follow after that are going to be juicy and ripe and you have good hope and you have expectation that it's going to be a great crop. The first fruits show that the crop is out there and what the crop is like. And Paul says that's pretty much the the idea that Paul's communicating to us. Jesus' resurrection was not just an isolated event. It it was not just a solitary fact of history. It wasn't just like Jesus, gosh, this is a terrible analogy. I I was going to say Jesus is the only tomato you get. But you know what I mean? Jesus' resurrection is, is is the first fruit of hundreds of thousands of resurrections that will take place because of what he's accomplished. And Paul says he's the first fruits. Jesus is the first. Maybe it's not a bad analogy to me. By the way, the first fruits were very important to the people of Israel. Uh, the first fruits represented the whole harvest. And what did the people of Israel do with the first fruits of, the, of their harvest? They gave them as an offering to God. Maybe this is a text on tithing this morning. No. It's a text on the resurrection and on the promise of the resurrection and on the assurance that we too will be raised from the dead in a bodily form and that we have something to truly look forward to. By the way, a specific day was set aside for the offering of the first fruits of the Israelites. Do you know what day that was? It was set for the Passover. Leviticus 23, if you want to check it out. That just happens to be the exact day that Jesus rose from the dead. Wow! Jesus is indeed the first fruits. He represents all that Israel had been sacrificing for all these centuries, and he is now the first fruit. 
Do you see the beauty of the continuity of the scriptures? No wonder Paul called him the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. Well, I want to talk about Adam for a minute. I want to talk about Adam and Jesus. Why is Jesus the first fruit from the dead? Why is the the resurrection, why should the resurrection guarantee the resurrection of God's people? Why is Jesus the first fruit of our resurrection? I want to talk about that idea, if I can, for just a minute. Paul says, look at what he says in the end of the text here. He's he's making an argument in verse 21. He says, by man that death came into the world in the first place, it is by man that death is defeated. Doesn't it make sense for death to be ended in the same way it started? Adam was the man who brought death into the whole human race. In God's scheme of things, Adam was no ordinary man. Adam was not only the first man ever to live, he was also the representative head of the entire human race. He is our spiritual DNA. He is our physical DNA. He is the first. Adam could, what Adam did counted for the whole of humanity. Of course, we know from the record in Genesis that that Adam disobeyed. You know what Genesis 2 and 3 says. The consequence of disobedience is death. Death entered the world. Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden, and the garden was sealed off from Adam and Eve so they couldn't enter. God set angels at the gates to the garden. The ground ceased to produce as it had. Adam and Eve had to wear clothing or began to wear clothing at that point in their lives. And their clothing was made from animal skins, death to the animals to provide for those skins. Paul's point is this. Paul's point is that Jesus came into the world as the second Adam, as the last representative head. Adam was the first representative head. Jesus is the second representative head. There will never be another representative for humanity, for human beings. There are some major differences, though, between Adam's headship and Christ's headship, and and it's pretty easy to point those out, isn't it? While Adam represented every single human that would ever come into existence without exception, Christ represents only those, and look at the text here carefully, only to those who belong to him. Look at verse 18. That's why Paul doesn't merely speak about Christ um, being the head for all who have died, but in verse 18, just the paragraph above, he says that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He makes a distinction between those who die and those who have fallen asleep in Christ. Paul reserves future hope only for those who are in Christ. That's my point. He says that again in verse 23. Look at verse 23. Each one in its own order, Christ, the first fruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ. The second major difference between Adam and Jesus uh, is that while Adam's headship resulted in death for all those he represented, Christ's headship obviously represents or brings, results in life for his people. And that's what verse 22 says. 
when the Corinthian church was denying the bodily resurrection, uh, these skeptical Christians were in fact striking a blow at the very heart of God's plan to redeem mankind. They were striking a blow that is a, that is a, a fatal blow. You can't have it both ways, Paul has already said. In separating Christ's resurrection from their own, they were separating Christ from the very people he came to represent. Without Christ representing his people, the whole plan of redemption breaks down and falls to the ground. Jesus is our second Adam. He's our head. He's our spiritual head. He's our representative head. Jesus had to become flesh. He had to do what Adam could not do. He had to do what you can't do. You realize that. You see, our nature is Adam's. Our nature is to do what Adam did, to disobey. To make ourselves the idol. To make ourselves the one that we worship, the thing that we worship. To make our desires that. Jesus came to set us straight to be the second Adam. He was fully flesh, fully man, and he was also fully God. Well, Paul moves on, and the second argument that Paul makes is that Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection because the final disposition of his kingdom demands it. And that's what he argues in verses 24 to 28. So, I've made my third point this, is, is when Christ's mediatorial work uh, will end. Because Paul goes to a great uh, bit of detail into uh, discussion about when Christ's mediatorial work will end. And if you look at verses 24 to 28 here, what Paul basically has given us is he's given us a timetable, more or less. He's given us an outline. In fact, uh, it comes as a chiasm. And if all had worked right this morning, uh, we could have shown you the chiasm. But he shows us that the point of, of the discussion here in Paul's argument is that Jesus' mediatorial work ends at the resurrection. That Jesus brings all things to the point at which human history began. He restores everything to what it had once been. Paul basically argues that Christ's mediatorial work comes to an end when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father. Let me, let me see if I can flesh that out a little bit more. You see, Christ received the kingdom from the Father. And Christ is now ruling and he's reigning over that kingdom uh, in this world. And, and he will continue that reign until he has subdued all of his inner enemies. And then at some point in the future... He will hand that kingdom back to the Father. Completed. His mediatorial work is done. So have you ever thought about what redemption is all about? I want to explore this just a little bit if we can. What does it mean, what does it mean to be a mediator? What does it mean to, to redeem something and to have someone as a mediator who handles the transaction? That's what Christ has done. Well, redemption, we all know what redemption is, right? It's, it, to redeem something is to buy something back. It's to bring it back under its original ownership. Kathy Tweedale, sitting over here, has a 1967 pink 
Mustang. Okay? It's a classic. Now, Kathy's 1967 Mustang, which I have never seen and never had the opportunity to drive, Kathy, but... <laughs> it is pink, and I might not look good in pink, but... The, the provenance of that 67 Mustang is kind of interesting. I've heard the story from Kathy. I've heard the story actually from Norma and uh, uh, before. And so uh, let, me, uh, let me just urge you to talk to Kathy about the story. But here's the, way it, here's the general outline of what happened. Her dad bought, um, Jim bought a, uh, uh, this 67 uh, Mustang for Norma, Kathy's mom and dad, uh, when it was brand new. It literally had never even made it to the showroom floor, and they bought it out of the warehouse that they show up in before they prep them and put them out on the dealer's lots. Brand spanking new, okay? First title, first, for, you know. They drove the car until finally, um, I guess, was it John? Yes. Oh, okay. It, anyway until there was a there was pregnancy Kathy had already been born and uh, there was uh, Norma was expecting you know she miscarried that's correct uh, anyway uh, uh, and they decided that a Mustang is not an appropriate family car for a family of four and so they decided to trade the car in well you fast forward through multiple years many many years the car uh, gets traded around, and it starts off in Oklahoma, goes to California, uh, then ends up in Jacksonville, and then somewhere up in Maine. And what was it that prompted the purchase? Kathy's dad, Jim, found the original paperwork in his, in his papers. Jim didn't throw any papers away. And he, was, he had put them aside in, a, um, in those sleeves and a ring binder and that kind of thing to keep, to preserve it. Anyway, started the process of looking for the car again. They finally found the car, and they bought it. Brought it back home to its original owners. That's a little bit of the picture of what Jesus has done. Jesus has restored us. He has redeemed us. He has bought us back to the original owners and brought us back into not only a restored Garden of Eden, but brought us back with the promise that we're going to have a glory that is even better than the Garden of Eden in Paul's, uh, in uh, uh, Adam's day. Jesus is bringing all things back to the place where human history began. Adam introduced rebellion against God. God's plan of redemption that existed before Adam was ever even created, before he ever sinned, was designed to bring everything back into a state of submission to the Father. How is that redemption accomplished? God says, God the Father commissioned his only son to come into this world to set up a kingdom. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him would have eternal life. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. The kingdom is, is both accomplished, it is an accomplished fact, and it's an ongoing process. God has redeemed his people, but we are not fully redeemed. It is a now and a not yet process. When Jesus died on the cross, Jesus encountered all the forces of Satan and of evil and of wickedness, and, and he made a decisive victory over death and over sin and over Satan. 
His kingdom was established by his death on the cross, and now he rules. Now Jesus reigns over our hearts. He lives over the hearts of those who put their faith and their trust in him. Even though all the forces of evil have been decisively defeated, that struggle continues. It's kind of like cutting the head off of a snake. It'll continue to twist and writhe and turn and everything else, even though it has been vanquished, it has been killed. That struggle, thank God, is not going to last forever. Paul says the time is coming when Jesus will finally put all of his enemies under his feet. Verse 25 of the text. All of his enemies will come under his feet. At that point, the goal of redemption is going to be realized. When all things are brought into subjection of Jesus, all that will be left for him to do is to hand the kingdom back to his father. Can you imagine what that will be like? The words of Paul, God will again be all in all. You see, Paul has laid out the time frame, the the schedule of events, the, the program, the order of worship, if you will. The particular enemy that Paul makes special mention of, the particular enemy that is so important for Jesus to have vanquished is the enemy, death. The enemy that, that the world would say closes our days, that, that we die and then we are no more. The enemy is death. Christ has vanquished. He has conquered. He has, he has defeated death on our behalf. You know, the kingdom of Christ has, has many, many enemies. There's sin, all of its manifestations. There's Satan, all the host of the demons. Why does Paul single out death? I think it was to show the Corinthians how foolish they were to argue against the resurrection of the body. Our bodies will be raised again because Christ has defeated death, that thing that ends us. Paul says death is also going to be brought into subjection. That's a glorious, wonderful promise. Death will not have the final word. Isn't that... Our highest hope? Isn't that what lets us get up in the morning after we lay a loved one to rest? Isn't that what we long for when we will be translated from this world to the next? Let me take one more minute, if I can, to think this through a little bit more. When, when God's people eventually rise from the dead, when we are eventually glorified, um, Jesus is no longer our mediator. His redemptive task is finished. Sin is blotted. I mean, he's been our mediator. He is our mediator, but sin is blotted out. Sin is finished. Satan and his hordes are powerless, and they're consigned to hell, and death is destroyed. Then Christ, who is glorified with his glorified body, is brought to heaven. The work of redemption is way broader than just the saving of the souls of God's people. That's Paul's point here. There's more to this than just snatching a soul from hell. Our bodies are redeemed. Our bodies will be raised. And if they're alive at the last day, our bodies will be transformed. That's our hope. 
That's why we celebrate the resurrection. That's why we do what we do. Through Christ, through Christ, this earth with everything in it has been created and has been redeemed. And in the end, the heavens will be renewed. The entire universe will be completely restored. At Jesus' return, the resurrection of all believers, the general re- judgment, the renewal of, of heaven and earth is, is going to occur. Because those events take place on the threshold of eternity, consideration of an exact chronology isn't necessary. We ought not press it. We ought not try to push Paul's words into that. They'll be completed when Christ's mediatorial work is done. When the kingdom is transferred from the Son to the Father, it doesn't mean that that Christ is no longer the Son, though. Christ will still continue to be God's eternal Son. He will still sit at God's right hand. He will still be worthy of our worship. He indeed will continue to reign. He doesn't abdicate his throne, but he invites us to sit at his throne with him. Think about that for a little while. Jesus is a brother to all those whom he's redeemed. That's what Psalm 22 is about. That's what Hebrews 2 talks about. And he'll always have supremacy. He will always reign. He has opened the door to eternal life for us. He has accomplished every bit of our redemption from start to finish. You've done nothing. And now he invites you and me to sit with him and to reign with him if we'll only trust him and trust his salvation for us alone. Not in ourselves, not in our abilities, not in anything else. Have you come to that point where you understand your need for a Savior? Have you come to that place where you understand that you can't do it? If you haven't, I'd ask you to think about that this morning. Consider what you can do and what Christ has done.